0: Thanks, Brad. Well, good morning, everybody. How are we? Good. Well, Merry Christmas. I'll say it again, just to make sure you are in the spirit. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. We'll be in verses 57 through 80. 57 through 80. Luke 1, the chapter where you're like, oh, this will will be a quick read, and then it's like 80 verses, so... Luke 1, 57 through 80, we'll be finishing this out looking at John, the birth of John the Baptist, and uh, as I was thinking about this passage, I was reflecting on something that I think is just true about myself, and that's that I love anticipation. Like, any, any other daydreamers? Like perpetual daydreamers, like it—it it is like detrimental. Actually, in my life, I just constantly think about what's ahead and what's to come, and, and I look forward to things. When I go on vacation, for instance, I am that weirdo that like looks at Google Maps just for a long time to understand and know where I'm going because I want to learn about these cities and imagine what it'll be like uh, to actually be there and to explore and do all these things. And my wife uh, puts up with it. But I love anticipation. Uh, To me, that's almost as fun as the thing itself is looking ahead at what is to come. And I love Christmas, which I think that I have uh, voiced on numerous occasions and you all are well aware of at this point. Uh, But I think that Christmas itself and this Advent season that we are in is kind of a season of anticipation, uh, both in the reflections of the season of Advent as we look ahead to the birth of Jesus, but also like, just horizontally in our present experience of life. Christmas is a time of joy where we look ahead at the things to come and the time spent celebrating together with family and with our church. And I love it. I love looking ahead at what is to come. And I think in these first couple chapters of Luke, we very much feel this tension of anticipation all the way throughout it. You see, where we've been so far, just in this first chapter, we see two different births foretold. We see John the Baptist's births foretold, and then we see the birth of Jesus foretold when the angel Gabriel visits the parents of John the Baptist and Jesus and tells them about what is to come, that they would each have a child. And in each of these circumstances, the anticipation and that tension builds even more because they were both unexpected and supernatural circumstances surrounding their conceptions. Mary, of course, was a virgin, and Elizabeth was old and unable to that point to conceive. And so finally, when we get to this passage today, the anticipation builds more and more and more, and finally we see the extraordinary arrival of John the Baptist, just as Gabriel had promised, but as we will see, the anticipation doesn't stop there. Because God has given John a role of anticipating something even greater yet to come, that he would announce the arrival of the kingdom of God. Let's read in Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. It says this, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors, and all the things were talked about throughout the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them was late, had laid up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. That is one sentence, by the way, in the Greek. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Also one sentence in Greek. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So A lot here and a lot to unpack, but we're going to take a look at this idea that John is announcing the arrival of God's kingdom. John is announcing the arrival of God's kingdom. So for our time, this passage is kind of split into two. Uh, We see the the beginning part of the birth story, and then we see Zechariah's prophecy about John's ministry. So we're going to divide it up in two simple ways. We'll first look at John the man in verses 57 through 66, who he was and how God was using him. And then we'll look at the message in verses 67 through 80. What would be the content of John's message and ministry as his father, Zechariah, foretold? Let's look first at John the man. So looking at these early chapters in Luke, it's really hard to overestimate the importance of John the Baptist. And Luke, as a narrative writer compiling this gospel, has very clearly helped us to see that God has both chosen and commissioned John for a special purpose. God's chosen and commissioned John for a special purpose, and, and Luke helps us to see that. And in verse 66, I would call this, the, it's kind of right in the middle of this passage, right in the middle of this story, I would call it a kind of thesis or summary statement about John and his ministry. It says this, and all who heard them laid up in their hearts saying, what then shall this child be, his commission, for the hand of the Lord was with him, he was chosen. let's unpack each of these in a little bit more depth. First, it's clear from what we see here that before he was even born, God chose John for a special purpose. And there are several evidences of this, but I'll name a couple. Uh, For one, here in this passage, uh, Luke shows us how John was woven into the story of Israel by showing us how his identity And the ministry that he would fulfill was found in and based on what we see in the Old Testament. In fact, in these 23 verses alone, there are 25 references to the Old Testament, either in themes or quotes. So why is that? Well... Luke wants us to see that just as God has acted in the lives of his people all throughout the history of Israel and all throughout the Old Testament Scripture, just as God has acted in the lives of his people from the beginning, so he is at work to raise up in John a prophet for himself. But additionally, we see that John the Baptist was chosen by God for a special purpose because of the miraculous circumstances surrounding his birth. You see, no part of John's story has been ordinary. If you remember back earlier in this chapter, the angel Gabriel visited Zechariah, John's father, in Luke chapter 1, verses 11 through 20, and told him that they would have a child. In a story not unlike that of Abraham and Sarah, if you recall this from Genesis, Zechariah is in complete disbelief that this could ever be possible because his wife and he were old, And previously unable to conceive. And it says, it tells us that because of Zechariah's disbelief, that Gabriel silenced him. He made him physically unable to speak until the child was born. But then we see right here in our passage today that just as Gabriel said in verse 64 all of a sudden, miraculously, Zechariah's mouth was open and he began to speak and prophesy about what the Lord might do through his son. And you can imagine how shocking of a scene that would be. It shakes us awake to see that this man who was miraculously silenced by God is now speaking and proclaiming these truths about what his son would do in the kingdom of God. Uh, anybody have kids that are just like random screamers? Okay, in the dead silence of my home, this shrill, sh- like, shrieking will just pierce the ears. And, and my son will just be sitting, my son Ben, he's about uh, 16 months old, he'll sit there, on, he's just sitting there on the ground, and he'll scream very loud, make your, make your skin crawl, it's so loud, and it's shocking, because you expected silence, but all of a sudden, loudly, here's this little tiny voice screaming. And it must have been shocking like that for the people to see how God was at work in Zechariah. But the point of all these things, Luke showing us how the story was woven into the history of Israel and shown in the scriptures of the Old Testament and in how God was miraculously working in the life of, of John and his parents. All of these things show us and demonstrate that John was chosen by God for a special purpose. You see, God was supernaturally at work in the present to prove how he'd been at work from the beginning. Weaving John into the story of redemption for his people. But this text shows us also that John was not just chosen and loved and and used by God. He had a specific commission by God to play a specific role in his kingdom. And we hear that first when Gabriel speaks to Zechariah back in verse 17. That John would, it says, make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now what this means is that John would be a special prophet for the Lord. He was to proclaim the coming of the Lord and call God's people to allegiance to his kingdom, just as all the prophets had done before him, just as Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah had done before. He was to be a prophet proclaiming the kingdom of God among us and calling people to allegiance. And in verse 76, once Zechariah's mouth is opened, he, he reflects upon the same truth. He recognizes that John, it says this, he says, And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High. Prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Now, the idea of a prophet or somebody going before the Lord to prepare his ways, we see this language show up uh, in Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5, and we see it later repeated in Luke uh, chapter 3, verse 4, if I'm not mistaken. And it's actually this idea of going before the king and announcing and preparing the way is actually borrowed from a pretty common practice at the time. You see, when ancient kings would go around in the kingdom and and go from city to city, they would send a forerunner before them to physically make ready the path before them and to announce to the people around that the king was coming. And in the same way, the Bible teaches us that John was a forerunner like this for Jesus. That he has gone before Jesus to ready the people and to announce the arrival of the kingdom of God. But this passage shows us also that this announcement of the arrival of the kingdom of God has weight. It means something to the people of God that the king is here. It means something. To the people that God's kingdom is here and is coming. And we see that in Zechariah's prophecy about his son's ministry. You see, this passage gives us a glimpse into what the arrival of God's kingdom means for the people. So let's look now at the message of John the Baptist. The message of John the Baptist. As I mentioned before, this passage that we're looking at today can kind of be split in half by this thesis or summary statement uh, that the crowds say in form of a question in verse 66, what then will this child be? You see, it's clear that the Lord was with him and the Lord was working among him. Everybody knew of the great signs and wonders, of the miracles that had happened with Gabriel appearing to Zechariah. These things become evident, and also how he is silenced and then all of a sudden able to speak. We know that John was special, that he was chosen by God to be a forerunner and prophet to his people. But prophets have a message, don't they? Prophets have a message. So, what was the message that John? Came to proclaim, And we find the answer to that in Zechariah's prophecy in verses 67 through 79. And the answer is that John came to announce the arrival of the king and his kingdom. And here's why that's important for us. Because the arrival of God's kingdom and Jesus as the reigning king is not only central to the ministry and the message of John the Baptist. It is central to the message of the gospel itself. It is central to the message of the gospel itself that Jesus, our king, has come and he is establishing a kingdom among us. At the very center of the good news that John came to proclaim is that Christ, our king, has come in his mercy to reign among us, to defeat the powers of evil, to give justice to the oppressed, to set the captives free from sin's tyranny, to cultivate goodness in the land and bring about flourishing For his people. This is the beauty and the fullness of the gospel that we so often miss. I don't know about you, but in the church tradition that I grew up in and in many circles in the church in the world, the gospel is nothing more than instructions for how to get saved and to not go to hell and good advice for how to live. But what we see from the message of John is that the arrival of the kingdom of God in the reign of King Jesus is the good news that changes everything. So this morning, I want to look at the three aspects of John's message that we see in Zechariah's prophecy to answer the question, what does the arrival of the kingdom of God mean for his people? Zechariah's prophecy, look with me in verse 68, begins with this, blessed be the Lord God, Of Israel, for he has visited us. You see, throughout this passage, what we see is that the message John is proclaiming is that God has brought the kingdom near to us and we receive it by his mercy. In verse 58, it says, The Lord showed mercy to Elizabeth by giving her a child. Verse 72 says that Jesus. His coming was an act of covenantal mercy, began first through Abraham. Verse 78, it says that God is showing us a great mercy by sending his son to us. You see, the good news of John's message is that God's kingdom has been brought near by his mercy to a people. Verse 78 says, sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. You see, church, this is true of us, that the king in his mercy has shown us this love and grace. God looked at us in our lowly and helpless state, living in the defeat of sin and crushed under the weight of death. And he sent his son, the merciful King Jesus, it says in verse 68, to redeem his people. But see, church, the coming of King Jesus was no ordinary conquest The coming of King Jesus was no ordinary conquest. Much to the surprise of the people living under the reign of the oppressive government of the time, King Jesus did not come with an army to overthrow the powers that be. His salvation was different. Jesus tells us in Mark 10, verse 45, that he came to give himself up. He gave to give himself up as a ransom for us. Meaning that he paid the price, a ransom is the price paid to redeem a people. He gave himself up, paid the price with his own blood shed on the cross to redeem us. And what that means, church, is that as John tells us, we receive the kingdom not because of anything that we have done or we can do, but because Jesus, our king, has made himself lowly for our sake. John will herald this good news in verse 77, we see that we have a salvation through the forgiveness of sins because of our merciful king. This is the economy of the kingdom of God. This is what Zechariah tells us, that mercy is the economy of the kingdom of God. We receive the kingdom because of the mercy of our king. And here's why this matters for you. The gospel is this big, grand, beautiful picture. It's a message of freedom, of goodwill, of peace, a revolutionary transition of power that the the powers of sin and Satan and death at work in this world have been defeated some 2,000-odd years ago on the cross. But more specifically, it is the good news that God in his mercy has made a way for you to be forgiven of your sins. God has brought his kingdom and is establishing it through his son Jesus, our King. But he is bringing the kingdom near to you as an act of mercy. God is not some cold, impersonal authoritarian come to put the shackles of rules and regulations on your life. He is a merciful king who has come in his kindness to liberate you from the captivity of sin and to walk in righteousness and freedom. That is true of every single one of us, that we live in this economy of mercy of God's kingdom. And so for everyone here this morning, the application is clear. But for those of you who do not know Christ, the invitation for you then is simple. The King has come near to you. The King has come near to you. If you're here this morning and you do not know Christ, the invitation is simple. You can take Christ. The king in his mercy has offered a way for you to be forgiven of sin, to be freed from sin, to walk in righteousness and freedom as God has designed you. This good news that John would one day proclaim about the coming king who would reign on high in his kingdom is good news for you. You can take Christ and this message can be yours. So we receive the kingdom, but, but it shows us that it's more than that. We embody the kingdom also. The gospel is the people embodying the kingdom. We see from Zechariah's prophecy that the reign of God and salvation for his people is more than just the forgiveness of sins. It's not less than that. It can't ever be divorced from that. But it is so much more than just forgiveness of sins. As some have cleverly quipped, it's more than just fire insurance to get you out of hell. Downstream of God's mercy is transformation for the citizen body. Downstream of the merciful king, reigning among us, Zechariah will show us, is transformation for God's people. Because of our citizenship and our belonging to the kingdom of God, our lives will look different. One way of saying this is that the kingdom of God is embodied among the people of God. Look with me in verses 74 and 75. It says this, It says because of Jesus' work of redemption, it says that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve God without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. You see, church, Jesus has not simply paid the price for our sins. Jesus has not simply covered our sins with his blood. His grace is so much more Jesus has liberated us from the captivity of our sin and enabled us to walk in righteousness and freedom. He has thrown off the oppression of darkness and sin and has brought us into the light, verse 78 says. And what this is, this refers to God's work of restoration among his people, his work of restoration within his kingdom. Because although God created all things back in the garden to be good, we know that sin has corrupted all things, including us and our souls. God's good design is broken and marred by the devastating effects of sin. And the Bible tells us that apart from Christ, we live in captivity, in bondage to that sin. We are unable, R. C. Sproul says it this way, that we are unable to even experience the blessing and goodness that God has intended for his creation because of our. Corrupted sin nature. Now, an important concept to understand, I think, to see here in John's proclamation is this idea of shalom in the scripture. Maybe you've heard this before, but shalom literally means peace. It literally means peace, but we tend to think of peace right in our minds as just being like the absence of conflict or something like that. But the definition of peace in the Bible has much more weight. It refers, shalom refers to an experience of wholeness, goodness, soundness, rightness, and peace. You see, before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve experienced true shalom in the garden with God. Sin entering the world disrupted our ability to experience shalom. And as a result, we now day by day experience the corruption and brokenness of sin in every facet of our lives. You see the devastating effects of sin at work in your relationships, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your work, in everything. We see the devastating effects of shalom shattered. But 78 and 79, verses 78 and 79 tell us that the good news of the gospel is that when God shines the light into our darkness, it says, that he guides our feet into the way of peace. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses that same word, peace, here to call what is shalom in the Old Testament. In other words, Jesus has come to guide our feet back to shalom. In other words, the gospel is that God is reweaving shalom into our lives and into our world because of the reign of our merciful King. He is allowing us to experience true wholeness and goodness. And flourishing by a work of his grace. And what that means, that as Christians, there are real intangible ways that the gospel transforms our lives and our world. There are real intangible ways that the people of God, having been shaped by the reign in the kingdom of God, should look different. It should have an impact and change us. As one author said, the Messiah King coming is a dawning of a new day for the people of God. That should be true for us, church, that we embody the kingdom in real and tangible ways. And so the invitation for us to consider this morning that if this great gospel is true, and if it's true that Jesus, our King, and his mercy has come to redeem us, and he is transforming us by a work of his grace, if that is true, considering verse 79, where in your life do you still sit in the darkness and shadow of sin? Where in your life do you still sit in the darkness and shadow of sin? The good news of the gospel is that God not only saved you from that sin, delivering you from the judgment of that sin, Jesus intends to deliver you from that sin also. The light will be seen in every corner of our lives. That is the work of God's grace in us. That we are people presently being transformed into the image of Christ, Romans 8 tells us. That is the work of our merciful King reigning among us. So where in your life do you still see darkness in the shadow of sin? This morning, know that the good news of the gospel is that you can confess these things and bring them to God, knowing that he has seen them already. He saw them before he went to the cross. Romans 5.8 teaches us that he saw these things and loved you anyway and desires to free you from the ruin of sin in your life. Church, see that the reign of the merciful king is God calling you to and enabling you, in you, a better way. And finally, the third aspect is this. Playing out throughout Luke's gospel, what we see is that the kingdom of God coming that John came to proclaim is a kingdom that is still yet to be proclaimed throughout the world. Now, certainly, lest I sound like a uh, cheesy uh, hype like Instagram preacher or something like that, what I'm not saying is that I'll be a proclaimer of the kingdom just like John. All right, let's go home. That's not what I'm saying. John's role is the forerunner, and Harold announcing the kingdom of God is unique to himself. However, Zechariah's prophecy suggests that's central to the identity of those belonging to the kingdom, is a participation in the proclaiming of that same kingdom. It is a participation in announcing that God's kingdom has arrived. Verse 79 says that John, through his ministry, will bring light to those who sit in the darkness and the shadow of death. You see, Jesus is the light, but John is used by God to shine that light. Now, this isn't directly in the text, but unmistakably, this is one of the 25 references, right? This is a reference to Isaiah 9-2, a prophecy about the coming Messiah. So all the way back in the Old Testament, foretelling the coming of Jesus, it says this about the coming Messiah, that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone church that light is Christ. However, interestingly, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, Jesus, likely to the shock of the Jewish people who knew that scripture well, applies the same language to us, his church. He applies that same language to us, his church. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. In other words, God's work of mercy to redeem and restore a people is a proclamation to a world that does not yet know Him. Through his church, us, God is building a witness to himself. If you are a Christian, you are, in some sense, a continuation of the work that God merely began in John. Though he's the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus says, we as his church are a continuation of that work of proclaiming that God's kingdom has come, that our merciful king is here to reign among us through the speech and conduct of us, of his people embodying the kingdom. God is building a witness to himself that others in the world might come to know him. Church, ask yourselves this morning, in what ways do I shine light into the darkness of the world? In what ways are people being pointed to Jesus in my life? You see, the effect of the reign of sin in our life is sinister. It's evil, it's wicked. Our work in this life is building up and proclaiming a kingdom of self, that we are something worth seeing, that we are something worth proclaiming, that we are something that everyone should see and experience. We are self-centered in this way. We build our kingdom with our houses and our money and our jobs and our status and our children and our community. But church, see that the reign of the merciful king among us calls us to be proclaimers of the true and actual kingdom that is everlasting. The kingdom of God coming to reign among us. And it is our joyful privilege to participate in heralding that message that the merciful king has come to reign among his people. So church, just as his father Zechariah prophesied, this gospel that John proclaimed, this gospel of the kingdom that he would herald unto his death, by the way, is ours today. Church's fellow citizens of God's kingdom, let us be encouraged that every word John proclaimed has become true among us. Every word of Zechariah's prophecy has become true among us that the gospel is at work in that way that our merciful king has come to reign in our lives and in our world. And by a work of his mercy, he is continuing to transform us day by day. He has freed us from the bondage of sin and is reweaving shalom into every corner of our lives. So church, let our thoughts, our lives our actions, our imaginations be drawn upward to the kingdom as God orients us in every single facet of our life to his reign and to his rule and that through us the world might come to know him because they see the goodness of our merciful king among us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have shown us a great love in Christ. Father, that we were held captive under the rule and reign of sin, but you have liberated us and set the captives free. Father, you reign among us on high. Call us more and more day by day to submit to your lordship, to submit to that rule and reign. Father, help us to see, to taste, to experience the goodness of the kingdom in you. Father, transform us day by day, to look more and more like Jesus. As the king goes, Father, so do this people. Change us, Father, to look more like Jesus, to look less like our sin. I pray this morning that for those here hearing this gospel proclaimed for the first time or maybe real to them for the first time, uh, Father, I, I pray that you would call them to yourself. Father, as your word says, that you would transfer them into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Father, you would do the work of enlightening their hearts to see your glory and your goodness. And Father, I pray that they would experience salvation, forgiveness of their sins in you. Father, for those of us here still experiencing the effects of sin, which is every one of us, Father, I pray, transform our imagination. Draw our mind upwards to the kingdom. Father, that we not be preoccupied with the rule and reign of darkness in our world or in our lives, but, Father, that we become in glad submission to your rule and to your reign. Father, that that your reign among us and your mercy would transform every facet of our lives. Father, help us to know and stand in the truth that you have liberated us from sin and from darkness. And, Father, I pray that transformation would ensue among us, as citizens of your kingdom. Father, we pray, use us as you have always for your people. It has been your plan from the beginning that through us the world might come to know you. Father, do that mighty work through Christ the King Church. May people see you. May they see the kingdom. May they experience the goodness of you, our King, in us. Father, I pray that they see that in our words how we engage, how we treat one another, Father, that in all things people would see a bold proclamation that your kingdom has come and that means something to us. It's not just words on a page or a religious tradition. Father, it is a present experience embodied among your people. Father, use this for your glory and your good, we pray, among your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.